Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. I'm your host, Don Abernathy. And we're here for another episode, and I want to thank everybody. Thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends, with your reenacting buddies, with your fans of history. Our numbers are growing, and it's definitely showing. Thanks to those of you who have gone to WTSPWorldWar2.com, and you've clicked on the Amazon link, and you've saved it to your desktop, and you're using that to shop through Amazon. That little bit of um, residual we get from that helps to develop the show, helps to get more equipment. And uh, thanks for you, those of you who have also, while at WTSPWorldWar2.com, have clicked on the link to become a Patreon to join one of the three tiers. The cheapest one's a dollar. Uh, the second one's three fifty. The third one's seven fifty. You join the seven dollar fifty cent plan. I will send you a T-shirt. Um, speaking of T-shirts, the WTSP T-shirt that you've seen in the photos of me and Jeff Copsetta. I'm having issues with it on the website. Um, technically, that campaign has ended. I'm trying to relaunch it, but Teespring's website is suffering from some technical difficulties, and that shirt will not relaunch. Hold tight. It will be back up hopefully in a few days, so you can get that new WTSP shirt and um, support the show that way. And as always, thanks to our friends at At Computers. At Computers of Southwest Florida has been servicing all of Southwest Florida since 2004. They specialize in small businesses, medium businesses, veterinarian clinics, contractors. It doesn't matter. They do residential. If you need a new server migration, they can help you there. If you need two form factor authentication for your web-based applications, they can help you. Online backups got you covered. Um, non-resource intensive antivirus programs. Uh, some of the most annoying things about some of these antivirus programs, one of them in particular, it likes to tell you whenever it didn't find anything. and tells you, hey, I did this, I did that, you're good to go. No. You need an antivirus program that protects you, that doesn't use up all your computer's resources, and then doesn't constantly harass you with notification windows telling you nothing's wrong. Simply tell me when I have a problem and that when you fixed it and we'll have a good relationship. They can get you that kind of uh, antivirus program. Your wife spilt wine on the keyboard of your laptop. Need a new keyboard? They can help you out there. Residential repair? They can help you out. Give them a call 239-283-1120. Now I know what you're saying, Don. Fella, I live across country. I'm in Oregon. How can that computers help me? Give them a call. As long as you have internet, tell them what's going on. Give them a call. They will direct you to their website, act-capecoral.com. You'll see a blue icon that says click here for remote support. That will download a small application. You give them the nine-digit key. They log in your computer, fix your problem, send you on your way. You're good to go. So thank you for supporting all of our sponsors. And uh, for those of you who are working out, trying to look a little better in uniform, trying to get back to it, Go to sleefs.com, that's S-L-E-E-F-S.com. Get all of your active wear gear there. Use the promo code D41040 at checkout, and that will save you 40% on all of your purchases, and they will send some money our way for that. And that will also help to support the show. But that's it. That's all the house cleaning that's out of the way. Um, real quick, for those of you who subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Music, Pretty much any platform out there. Thank you so much. Please give us a review through those platforms. But also, um, I want to express the importance of going to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Every episode we do, every person we interview, we 
include links to all the pertinent websites, all the projects, the books, the USO shows, whatever that particular person or organization is promoting. All the links will be found there, links to their Facebook pages or Instagram pages. Um, we have links to videos that we're working on. I have been spending the last few weeks editing videos. We have a lot of World War II based and military based videos coming your way for our YouTube channel. And that is another benefit of becoming a patron. Not only will you get some exclusive uh, videos and content on there, but it'll also give you notifications when any videos are posted on YouTube, so you don't have to track them down. Um, but that's it. Thank you for your continued support. It means the world to me. Um, it's great when I'm driving around or I'm at an event and someone says, hey, I love the podcast. It kind of throws me for a loop because I still don't think anybody listens, but you guys do. Thank you so much. And you can get all your WTSP t-shirts at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And part of the reason I want to thank everybody for your continued support. We finally did it. It is here. Episode 50. We're halfway to 100. When I first started this, I didn't know how long I would be able to find content that was interesting to everybody. Um, and here we are. Episode 50. Here's to 50 more. Here's to 100 more. Um... You know, when I first started this, my main goal was to interview vets, and that still is my main goal. And so for those of you who've been around for all 50 episodes, I want to say thank you, but I want to ask you a huge favor. This one has no financial attachment to it. Please, if you know any World War II vets, if you know any women who were alive during the war, who contributed at the home front, or even took care of a family, if you know anybody who was alive and around between... 41 to 1950, send them my way. Send me an email at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Give me some information, whether it's a phone number, an email address of them or to a relative, and I will take care of the rest on my side. That's the one thing I need to ask of all of you because our audience is worldwide. We have people listening around the world. And so if you know of someone who was alive during that time, they don't even have to speak English. As long as we can get a translator, I will talk to them. Uh, American, German, Japanese, Belgium, French, Czechoslovakian, Russian, I don't care. Anybody. You know, anybody who's alive during that time, please send me an email to info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And thank you guys for helping us make it to episode 50. Lieutenant Reba Whittle was the only U.S. female soldier to be imprisoned as a POW in the European theater of war. Whittle was a flight nurse with the 813th Medical Air Evacuation Squadron and had logged over 500 hours. On a flight from England to France to pick up casualties in September of 1944, her plane went off course and was shot down over Aachen, Germany. As the few prisoners were collected and taken prisoner, the Germans did not know what to do with Whittle, as she was the first female military POW on the Western Front. On the Eastern Front, however, many female Russian soldiers were interned as POWs and used as forced labor. Whittle, who was initially rejected by the Army Air Corps in 1941 for being underweight, was allowed by the Germans to minister to the wounded in the camp. A Swiss liaison that negotiated POW transfers, mostly of wounded prisoners, discovered that Whittle was in the Germans' custody and began to arrange for her release. Whittle was escorted by the German Red Cross away from the camp along with 109 male POWs on January 25, 1945. Whittle's status as a POW was undocumented by the United States military. 
She was awarded the Air Medal and the Purple Heart and promoted to lieutenant, but was denied disability or POW retirement benefits. The injuries received during the crash kept her from flying, so she worked with the Army Hospital in California until she left service in 1946. Whittle applied for and was denied POW status and back pay for 10 years. She finally accepted a cash settlement in 1955. While nurses who were imprisoned in Asia had received a hero's reception upon their release, Whittle's story was kept quiet by the Army and was barely noticed by the media due to the celebrations of the war's end. Whittle died of breast cancer in 1981. Her POW status was officially conferred by the United States Army in 1983. And joining us from the phones right now, a young lady I had the privilege to meet and work with out in uh, Fredericksburg, Texas at the National Museum for the Pacific War. She is one of the females who um, actually takes part in the Living History program because before the battle reenactment, as we've talked in the past, the reenactment itself is simply a cherry on top of an educational program. So when you go to experience everything, uh, the living historians come out, they explain the role that they are portraying, what that person did, male or female, their uh, contribution to the war effort, things like that. Give you a brief synopsis quickly, but have the full uniform. And one of those living historians is a nice young lady that I had a great chance to meet named Elizabeth Dillard. Elizabeth, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for coming on our show. Um, let's... How, how I usually get started anytime I have a new guest on the podcast is I basically start, you know, what do you do for a living and how did you get started in uh, the wonderful addicting world of living history? <laughs> okay. Um, so what I do for a living is totally opposite from anything history. I'm an EMT and I work at an emergency medical lab. Um, I guess the only thing related to what I do with the museum with World War II history is that I work with civilians, but I also work with a lot of military combat medics, um, current combat medics. So it's kind of cool to work with current guys in the military, but then also kind of remembering our past as well. So that's, that's kind of who I am. But then um, with the museum, my sisters and I, I have two sisters, um, an older sister and then a twin sister. And we like to sing old 40s music. Um, it kind of started with my parents would put on a cassette of the Andrew Sisters when we were kids. And so we kind of grew up listening to the Andrew Sisters. And then we just like would sing along with them. And then uh, we just started singing at like nursing homes or for like grandparents. And then uh, one time we volunteered with the museum. And we were like, oh, by the way, we know Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. And they're like, oh, really? Can you sing it? And we're like, okay. 
And so we sang it, and then I guess you could say the rest is history because Jeff wouldn't let us leave until we kept singing it for the museum. <laughs> the thing about that song, a lot of people don't realize, because, you know, and I'm sure you can contest this, even today, people don't really listen to lyrics as much as they do the the uh, hook and the, the rhythm. Right. The yes, th- exactly. The thing I always point out about that song, because I, I, when I listen to music, I listen to it for the lyrical content. The, the right. thing about that song, people don't realize, the bugle... The boogie woogie bugle boy from Company B, though he could play a killer horn, he cannot keep time. He cannot play by yeah. himself. So, as as the ladies point out in the song, the sergeant had to go out and draft him a band. So, right, exactly. That's our. That's my favorite part. I don't know about my sisters, but when you have to go draft the whole band, it's great. <laughs> it's like, well, we got this guy, great guy, blows an awesome horn, but uh, he's straight out of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. But I'd be darned yeah. if he can't keep time to save his life. So I guess we only have one choice, and that's uh, draft five other guys who uh, yeah. just scoop them up out of their civilian lives just so they can come and uh, join this fella to uh, liven up things at the uh, at the the bivouac and the Reveille. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we do that one. We have a. I mean, since we've gotten involved with the National Museum of the Pacific War, it was like I think three years ago now. Um, we sing that one, but then we have like 10 other, at least 10 or 12 other um, really popular songs from the era that we love to sing, like Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree mm-hmm. or Chattanooga Choo Choo. Or um, there's there's one that we recently heard called Scrub Me Mama with a Boogie Beat, um, yep. which has got a really catchy tune. Um, so we just love singing the old songs. And, you know, talking about lyrical content, the thing about the Andrews sisters, if you pay attention, especially in All Fair and Love and War, they uh, they, they aren't afraid of stealing your boyfriend if you're not careful. That, <laughs> no. People are like, well, Yeah, we play off that a lot. <laughs> people are like, well, those old songs, they don't, you know, they're so, it's like, have you heard All's Fair and Love and War? They're basically saying, uh, if you don't get to him, I will before someone else steals him. So it's. Exactly. Those songs. There's an old song. Um, it's called Rosie the Riveter. It was sung by the Four Vagabonds. And in the song, they talk about, so it's a song about Rosie the Riveter, the lady that Mm -hmm. is kind of like the icon for all the millions of women that join the workforce. And so in the song, um, they kind of refer to Rosie has a boyfriend named Charlie. And so whenever we sing it at the museum, um, we obviously sing about Charlie, but we have an old veteran. He is an Iwo Jima um, veteran that fought on Iwo Jima, was wounded, um, and he has a really cool, awesome story. His name is Mr. Fred Harvey. I mm-hmm. believe you met him yes, when you ma'am. were there at the museum? Mm, yes, ma'am. So in the song, because uh, the Marine's name is Charlie, we're like, well, it rhymes with Harvey. So what we did one time, he was sitting in the stands listening, and so while we're singing the song, we changed it to Harvey. So Rosie's got a boyfriend named Harvey, and in the song, we started waving at Mr. Harvey, and he blushed so oh, sure. much. He just got a huge kick out of that. It was so much fun. Yeah, when Mr. Harvey was telling a story, um, he had the privilege and the honor, and he's very proud of this. He was part of the short-lived paramarines. Um, early yeah. on in the war, they had Marine paratroopers. Um, they had a few combat campaigns, but then they were quickly disbanded. But Mr. Harvey was super proud of the fact that he got to keep his jump boots, because much like in the Army, the only people who mm-hmm. had the tall boots, with the exception of the double buckles, were those who were airborne. And so that they got to blouse their pants, and that was a big thing. And they would often find non-airborne guys trying to blouse their 
their trousers and that would get into a fight. But anyhow, Mr. Harvey yeah. is so proud of the fact that he here he was. All these Marines are wearing their you know, they're loose leather boondockers, and not, they're comfortable, but as far as boots go, they don't pro- provide a lot of support, and here he is with his no. his uh, jump boots from the recently disbanded pair of Marines, but when he got hit by his grenade, one of the boots got mangled, and he tried mm-hmm. his best through morphine, through passing out, through being transported to four different hospital ships to keep in possession of his boots, but much to his dismay, as he woke up on a transport ship, his boots were gone. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of a sad story and he always tells us that story about he wanted his jump boots. But um did you hear about how mm-hmm. the museum gave him a pair of jump boots? Yes, ma'am. Um What's last up? November. So that was just an honor for us as museum volunteers to um be a part of his story, to listen, to remember um what he did for us, but then also to kinda of honor him by being like, Hey, so we recognize that you lost something really precious to you and so we wanna we want to give you a pair of um, of combat boots. So 74 years later, the museum, due to the um, access they have and the um, channels they have to wonderful um, artifacts, they were able to track him down a pair of original paramarine mm-hmm. jump boots and uh, replace the ones that he had lost so long ago. So yeah. you, you got hooked up with the museum and and Jeff, through your love of the Andrews sisters in 1940s music, but as you said, once you poked your head in that door, and once you and your sisters made a a presence on the scene, now you're you're kind of you're being drafted yourselves, and yes. <laughs> you go from exactly. singing to now you're kind of starting to get enveloped in this world of living history. Have you did you have you dipped your toe in it prior to this, or was it just something you knew about or didn't even know about? Um, and um, so, um, yes and no, I had never done World War II re- or living history reenacting, although I had been exposed to it for a number of years in the asset of like, um, Texas living history. So as a Texan, you always go to all of the different, uh, San Jacinto reenactment or Goliath or the Alamo. And so I'd been exposed to that and been involved in that. I had done um, like pioneer reenacting in the past and through different people through pioneer reenacting, that's how I'd heard about the museum. Um, I'd always been more passionate about World War II history. It's just always kind of drawn me a little bit more just because of um, the, the state our country was in and how we all united together to kind of fight against and how we brought out the good in our men and women and in our children, too. And so that that always encouraged and inspired me. So um, the museum was just an awesome, the Museum of the Pacific War was um, just an awesome resource to get involved in, just to kind of remember the history. But um, the interesting thing about the National Museum of the Pacific War, when we originally got involved, there really was no representation of what the women did in World War II. Um, kind of like you mentioned earlier, we do have the um, Pacific Combat Zone where the guys will demonstrate weapons. They'll talk about the history. They'll show uh, what we call the kid pack. So, like what a soldier mm-hmm. would wear during their um, during their um, when they were overseas. But at the same time, and they have their battle too. But they never showed anything about what women did in the military or on the home front. So that was when we got involved originally, my sisters and I, we would sing just to kind of show the USO uh, morale side of it. 
But then we also kind of recognize that there's a side of the home front that really wasn't being portrayed. So um, it's been kind of cool to kind of find uniforms that women would have worn uh, during the war. So what the wax would have worn, what the waves, what the Marine Reserve would have worn, what the nurses would have worn, uh, what the Coast Guard, so the spars, what they would have worn. Um, but then also kind of diving into um, what the women on the home front would have wore, because it really kind of changed um, kind of the aspect of what American society looked at. Like, no longer were women required, not required, but like um, expected to stay at home with kids. But instead, it was like, hey, we need you to kind of be involved a little bit more in um, on the on the workforce, just producing more for our men. Um, and I think, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like um, American um, um, industry had mm-hmm. produced like 50% more of like tanks, jeeps, all the weaponry, um, naval ships. They produced 50% more than the whole um, Axis put together just because of what the women did by joining, uh, doing their part in the war effort. So it's kind of cool to kind of represent that side of our history at the museum. And it's got to be cool, especially for someone like you who um, kind of grew up around the Andrews sisters and all that, to have access to some original clothing that were designed mm-hmm. for women. And, and you're lucky enough to, you know, some of the stuff will actually fit you because of, you know, exactly. how small you are. No. And, you know, me exactly. being six foot that five. That was my main concern originally being, was uh, my sisters and I are were really tall and... Um, uh, so we were like, uh, I'm not sure any of these uniforms will fit us. So it's always amazing us when we find something that um, survived 75 mm-hmm. years for one and then also fits us. So it's hilarious. Now, I'm looking at your uh, Instagram page, and I see you and your sisters also had the great honor, um, pun intended, to go down <laughs> to the airport. Um, I have a guy here in Florida who does it with the South Florida Honor Flight. They get under in the yeah. Class A uniform. So I've seen a photo of you and your sister and another young lady who's wearing a nurse uniform. You guys got to go down and, you know, kind of greet the uh, veterans when they came in. And uh, and I, I'm yeah. sure the Honor Flight has a, a real close association with the museum. I know they were there when I was there. They had 15 vets there. And, you know, I went over to their table. And I just, I didn't, couldn't, I could not bring myself to harass those guys, even though I would love to interview every single one of them. So what I did is I just gave a stack of my business cards to one of the gentlemen from the honor flight and just asked them to give it to them before their trip was over. And if they felt it was something they wanted to do, have them call me. If not, I just couldn't bring myself to harass them while they're eating. But um, have you done a lot of the honor flight stuff through the museum? Yes. Um, mostly, so the pictures that you're looking at is the return um flight from uh dc we my sisters and i have done um maybe like two years worth of greeting the the passengers when they come back from touring the monuments at dc um we originally so i don't know if you met brian degner brian degner um works with the education side at the national museum of the pacific war and so when we originally got involved he had a group of um volunteers that um kind of reenacted the Iwo Jima famous pose of holding the flag up for Mm -hmm. these guys. And then we showed up in our WAC uniforms. And it was really hilarious because looking at this really cool display of the Iwo Jima flag blurring in the wind and all these boys, and then you turn and look at the old guys, and they're like, I just want to look at the girls with the red lipstick. And you're like, (laughs) okay. Um, 
So we've kind of gone back ever since. We um, we like to sing some of the old songs from just um, since it is um, where we're at. It's the San Antonio airport. Sure, that's so a it is a busy airport. airport. So there's only so much you can actually do. But just wearing the uniforms, uh, the pictures that you see with the nurse who came. She mm-hmm. also volunteers at the Museum of the Pacific War. Her name is Haley. Um, she's actually volunteered for years and years and years, like more than we ever did. Um, at the museum, but in her nurse's uniform, all of these old veterans are just drooling over her. They're like, you remind me so much of the girls that I remember from back during the war. And that's always the best compliment we received. Um, the last Living History program, when you were there, we actually had an old lady contest, and she was like, that wave uniform gives me nightmares because it looks exactly like the one that I had to wear and I had to press and I can't stand looking at it. And we were like, oh, I'm sorry it gives you nightmares, but at the same time, I'm really excited it does because it shows me that um, I'm really representing the history well. Yeah, I know um, it was either you or one of your sisters was wearing um, a Marine Corps, um, was it a nurse's dress with the blue um, stripes? looked... um... Um, I believe, so the blue one would have been the wave, and that one that we have at the museum is actually a radioman. Um, the white uniform would have been the nurse's Navy uniform. I just know somebody's so, wearing, like, it may not even been a uniform, it was like a blue and white dress, and one of uh, Mr. Harvey's chaperones was, like, just totally blown away with it, like, wanting to know where it was from, or how they found it, and everything like that. Um, mm-hmm. Are you familiar with... Either one of these shows, one's called Manhattan. It was on WGN the last one season. It was about the Manhattan Project. A little bit of truth, a whole lot of um, you know, artistic licensing. Or on Netflix, the show Bomb Girls. I have heard of both. I haven't seen either of them, but I have definitely heard of both. Well, the reason I bring them up is in both those shows, obviously Bomb Girls is all... Well, it's all female cast, and it's it's right. kind of tongue in cheek, but it's a good show. But the reason I bring them up, if you're 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 talking previously about um, home front women's styles, you know, not the uniforms, but the, the everyday styles. Well, in bomb right. girls, you'll see you'll see their everyday style because these are girls who are working in a bomb factory and they got dates and you know all that the soap opera side of it. And so that right. in Manhattan, um, the wives of the scientists, you know, they're not military, and so you can get. A, you can see that the, the turban trend was in back then. Women loved to wear yeah. turbans, um, the high-waisted pants, some of the cool sunglasses. And so those mm-hmm. actually might be some kind of cool reference points just to see what sort of um, you know tra- blouses and pants and shoes that the uh, women wore back then that you might be able to find something close or similar to them. Right, yes. We have a lot of – we actually at the museum for the women, so – Whenever we have new volunteers that come to um, to represent World War II history with us, a lot of times they're interested in the history, but they're not super confident on, like, I, I can recognize, oh, that's a World War II-era-looking uniform, but I'm not 100%. Sure. So um, at the museum, we actually have put together um, a resource binder for, um, that's what we're calling it, a resource binder for our women, just because the museum... Um, didn't originally have one book with that, so we actually have different sections, and one of them is the civilian clothing, kind of like what you're talking about. So mm-hmm. civilian work clothes and uniforms that the women would have worn, just to kind of give these volunteers that come in that um, want to be part of the history but don't 100% know what really they're getting into, so to kind of be like, hey, this is kind of what it looked like, you know, like the high-waisted pants, um, you know, that 
super gray, wear the tight belt, um, sometimes like looser shirts, because a lot of times for women, when they were going to work like in the victory gardens or out um, in the fields, they would wear like their dad's or their brother's clothes, because back then you couldn't just go to Target and pick up like jeans and a t-shirt or something. So they would wear their dad's or their brother's um, oversized clothes just so they can go out and work in the field. Um, so we, we have this binder just to kind of help the, the new volunteers that come in to get a better picture of, of what they're really getting into. And if you're a young lady and you're in the Fredericksburg area and you're interested in doing this, but you're seeing yourself, hey, you know, I, I kind of want to get in on the action, you know, well, I like to mm-hmm. I like to shoot firearms. Um, Aaron and I talked about this on the first episode that uh, we yeah. about the uh, museum. Due to the body size and the height, a lot of the ladies who volunteer there also double as the Japanese soldiers yeah. who were up in the bunkers because they uh, one small statue and the and the crowd's about six yards away, so it's not like they can tell. And so, right. if you are a young lady and you're in the Fredericksburg area or San Antonio area. Or you like to drive a couple, you know, hours. I mean, even out here in Florida, the last event I did was at the Army's 244th birthday dinner. I, uh, me and a crew, we were invited out to set up a D-Day display. That was a two-hour oh. drive for me, uh, two-hour setup. The Our participation was only an hour and a half long, two-hour teardown, and then a two-hour drive home. So driving is part of this hobby, as you know. You, you see guys. Um, so if you're in that area and, you know, you want to get involved... Um, go to the museum's website, and uh, as I always do, I post links to all these stories. I, I, you know, I post a few photos. So if you guys are subscribers on iTunes or Apple Podcast or Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, all of them, please go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. I always have photos of the people I'm talking to. I have links that are relevant to the conversation, and um, we got to get more ladies into the hobby. Um, mm-hmm. And not to beat a dead horse, and I've talked about this in, in previous episodes, I really think with the social acceptance of cosplay, and especially yeah. among young ladies, um, that it's getting to be a little more socially acceptable to become a reenactor. Because before cosplay blew up and was socially acceptable, and I always I, I tie that to your generation growing up with a TV show called The Big Bang Theory. Um, yeah. I think because of that, people are more willing to become reenactors because prior to that popularity, you know, reenactors, we were kind of looked down as weirdos by, you know, people of pop culture because they didn't get it. And so, you know, and so it seems like the younger people, they're willing to jump in and get involved because they're already one of the biggest barriers to entry in this hobby is the cost. Well, cosplay stuff ain't cheap either. And so they're already used to the shell shock of the cost of all that. And their parents are already used to it. And so they're, it's a little easier for them to make that transition. And so younger people, we need younger people because it's more authentic because let's be honest, these, these men are 17, 18, 19 years old. And most of us reenactors are in thirties and forties. So we definitely need the younger cats. You guys have a great program. Um, as yes, we talked with, um, as I talked with Aaron and I talked with Jeff in the past, you have the ability to outfit people. And so, if you guys are in the area and are interested in doing this, but you're saying to yourself, "Well, I don't own anything," they can exactly. outfit you. You guys have that. That's a huge benefit. The ability to walk in there, it's almost like uh, central casting. You pull up in your shorts mm-hmm. and your uh, t-shirt, and you walk in, you get in line, and within ten minutes, you're in full uniform. 
Yeah, that's the great thing about uh, the National Museum of the Pacific War is that they have a huge variety of uniforms and clothes, just so um, any random... We actually, so several of the girls that volunteer with the Japanese platoon, originally it came just to see the show, and then on Saturday, and then the next day on Sunday showed up and said, hey, can I volunteer? Um, So the museum... uh, in Fredericksburg is, is super great about having a variety so we can try to outfit as many people as possible. Yeah, and it, I mean, it definitely helps. It makes it a lot easier for people to get involved. Now, are you um, are you out of San Antonio or do you live in the Fredericksburg area? Um, I'm kind of in between San Antonio and Fredericksburg. So I usually say San Antonio, but yeah. Well, the nice um, thing about the location... Um, one, Fredericksburg itself is a beautiful town. Yeah. And, you know, guys, if you're trying to convince your your spouse or someone in your family to go with you who's not interested in war, but they like their wine, they yeah. got that covered. So when you're at the museum, because it's a huge museum, you know, we focus a lot on the Pacific Battle Zone, but the museum itself is huge. And one thing, yeah. I, I, it shocked me, and I was telling Jeff, the way the building is laid out. Um, the footprint of the building is not uh, offensive from the street, meaning it's not some big giant building tucked into the small little town. The way it's done, you're actually surprised on how much stuff they have tucked in there. Uh, you see full-size planes, full-size mini-submarines, tanks, anti-tank uh, tank aircraft, all that stuff. And the footprint of the museum is so large, as I said before, they... You're, the ticket you buy is good for 48 hours. So plan on staying the weekend. And yeah. as Jeff and I talked, they you don't walk in, okay, it's Pearl Harbor. No, they go back to the late 20s, early 30s, and they explain in depth why Jap- Japan was doing what they did and their reason behind it. And they actually go through the history leading up to Pearl Harbor and then, of course, throughout the war all the way up to, to the surrender. Right. And so definitely do not sleep on the museum. It's it's uh, mind-blowing. It's b- well done. It's super beautiful. Um, a lot of the stuff, the mini subs and uh, some of the other stuff, it's it's open. You can touch it. It's not behind glass. Mm-hmm. It's not behind velvet ropes. There's no guard standing there. It's... You know, it's not an interactive in a form of touchscreen and all that, but yes, the, the door off the Arizona, you can go up to it. You can touch it. You can knock on it. You can feel how okay. thick it is. You can you know, rub your hand across it knowing that, you know, what happened with that, that vessel and, and the lies lost. So there are things that you can get close and personal with and really get a sense of the, the scale and the size of these things. Right. Yeah, that's something that um, Jeff Copsetta, just all of the people at the museum, the museum director, they're um, really passionate about bringing this World War II history to our, our current generation here to kind of make it alive. So that's really one of the reasons that we really bring out the old things so that people, like the kids, can touch the guns. They can, they can, they can put on a helmet to kind of see, oh, this is kind of big, or we'll put a satchel on them or put the, the gun belt on them just to see, like, hey, you know, 17-year-olds, like your brothers and sisters' age or maybe your sons and daughters' age, this is what they, this was their reality back in World War II. 
Um, and you kind of touched on this too, but it, another aspect I really love about not only the museum, but the Pacific Combat Zone is how they bring um, the, the past history. So from the 20s and the 30s, just to kind of build up to why we even had World War II, because we could, we can throw just the, the blood and the gore and the sweat and everything at people. But until you understand like what the his, American history was, but then also Japanese history was, then now we finally understand about why it was such a such a sad, horrible war that we really united and were victorious in. So they do a really good job about that. Well, and you were stating earlier about Rosie the Riveter and the amount of production we put out. Mm-hmm. Um, the crazy thing was, is before we got involved in the war, one of the things we tried to do, I don't want to use the word placate because it's kind of, kind of negative but one of the things we try to do to satisfy our allies to prevent us from actually getting involved in the war because we were still dealing with um world war one hangover we were over it we didn't want to that was supposed to be the war the end all wars and so we had what they were calling the isolationist movement right yeah the whole idea was hey that's over there we're over here you know there was no internet uh telephones were rudimentary at the time so to Mm -hmm. get from there to here you know that's two to three weeks on a boat and, you know, that's their problem, not ours. But, you know, the war and the politicians, they knew they knew what was going on. They they saw, you know, they could see the, the forest and the trees, but we're trying to yeah. satisfy the populace. And so what they did early on is say, okay, well, we're not going to send any of our, our boys over there, but we'll send supply. We have this great Detroit's, you know, we'll just retool them. Instead of putting out cars, we'll put out tanks, we'll put out planes. We'll provide guns, uniforms, etc. And so our industrial machine was already, it was rolling. It was in, it was in fifth gear. It was in overdrive. By the time that we had to send our men, mm-hmm. the industry, the industry was running full steam. And so that was the other reason why. Okay, let's quickly transition the women in. Not only were they able to train them so quickly because the machine was already running, the positions were already there. It would have been yeah. so. Our output would have been hindered so much if not only did we take a group of um, a demographic who previously seldomly worked in those environments because of the social construct back then, but if we did that at the same time as the transformation from cars over to war goods were happening, it would have just taken so much longer. But because the the machine was up and running, the positions were already there, the management was in place, and we were already put, putting the stuff out for so many years prior to us getting involved in the war, it was easier to make that transition because things were already going. And so they were able right. to meld them in, and then the women just took over. And then the awesome part is is that really helped lay the foreground for the future feminist movement because you already had the proof. Hey, during the war, not only did we come in pick up where the men left off but there's evidence that some of us did a better job um some of your foremans were surprised at the intellectual level in which these women not only came in and did the manual physical labor but provided intellectual content helped resolve issues did online engineering well one of my favorite parts of how america really built their women um, during World War II is comparing and contrasting with how other countries looked at their women. So you look at how um, Germany involved their women in World War II, how Russians involved their women, how the Japanese involved their women in the war. And you contrast that with America and you realize that 
um, Germany, Russia, and Japan really looked at their women as just kind of um, just another another body, another um, just kind of a tool that was just there as a, a workhorse. Whereas America really looked at their women as um, a strong kind of foundational asset that um, really could provide morale and, and strength, not in a way that men would bring strength, like in combat roles, but that women could bring a strength that would enable and strengthen the men even more, whether it was on the home front or we have women who, um, like all of the nurses, uh, Red Cross nurses, Army nurses, the um, Navy nurses in the Philippines and um, over in the Pacific, um, they were really kind of on the front lines. Even though America purposely tried not to put women on the front lines, there were there were times, especially in the Pacific Theater, where these nurses really um, were right there in not the middle of combat, but but really right off the side. So. I'm just realizing how America really viewed their women as valuable really encourages me. And then how, um, like what you're saying, how it kind of, um, from our history after World War II, so into the 50s and the 60s, how we originally um, upheld and encouraged our women during the war, how it really helped the outlook for women in the years following um, is just really awesome. Well, you had the famous story, and of course, back then it was top secret, so no one knew about it until 20, 30 years later, but the famous actress, Hedley Lamar was mm-hmm. whip-smart. She was so smart, she actually got into um, the intelligence side, um, and she had, I think, 15, 20 patents, and one of those patents, I think so, yeah. um, at the time, the problem they were having was um, torpedoes were being hacked, if you will, using modern-day terms. Um because they basically were attached with a super, super fine signal wire, and it would mm-hmm. transmit signals to it, and they were easily interrupted. And unfortunately, her invention came too late for World War II, but it was used in, in later times. But basically, her and, I don't know if he was her boyfriend at the time or just a close friend, he was a piano player, and he used to do a lot of Broadway stuff, and they were looking at the keys of the piano, and each key represents yeah. a different note. And she said, well, what if we kind of replicated that and continuously change the notes so that the notes don't stay the same each time a torpedo goes out the song changes if you will and so if you're not using the same notes it's harder to interrupt it and fast forward to 2004 even now to 2019 that invention of hers that signal changing technology is what we use for wi-fi that's what we use that's what our cell phone technology is based off of so the the stuff that impacts our society greatly today the rudimentary, mm-hmm. the root level of that came from Hedley Lamar in 1944-ish, 45. Right, yeah, and, her story is awesome. And then, you know, sadly, another story that people aren't aware of because it was kept secret because the military didn't want Japan to get motivated was with the uh, Japanese barrage balloons. They would send over these giant balloons in the Gulf Stream and they would have um, bombs hooked up to them with... Time delays, it would slowly drop sandbags so they would stay aloft. And they did very little damage. They caused some forest fires, um, and, and to which point that's how the um, modern-day smoke jumpers, but you guys can go back to episode three or four and listen to that. But there was one that landed in Blythe, Oregon. And sadly, on that Sunday, a, a group of uh, church students, along with their uh, Sunday school teacher named Elsie Mitchell, who was pregnant at the time, 
I think there was some road construction going on. Her husband stopped to talk to the road crew. Her and the kids decided to get out of the car and stretch their legs and go for a walk in the beautiful Oregon side. And one of the children found a balloon sitting on the, out in the woods. And they all went up to it and it did explode, killing oh, Elsie, okay. her unborn child, and five kids from the church. And to this day, they are the only comba- uh, only um, American casualties caused by a combatant on the American soil in all of World War II because it would happen from a Japanese brush balloon. But they are uh, in history the only ones to die from the war on American soil. Yeah, it's a sad story. So we're going to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, got to work with you at the Living History at the Pacific yes. Theater. And then uh, there's something cool going on down at this little place called the Hangar Hotel. Yes. A USO show, and I get there, and I'm minding my own business, and I see a group of young ladies up there singing, doing their thing, and everybody dances their tails off. So not only do you guys sing at the museum, but it would seem, and I can't blame you, I mean, how often do you get to sing in front of a full orchestra? Um, You guys tore it up. You guys did a great job. Thank you. Yes, they are the Bill Smallwood Band. They are um, a, their official title is the Lone Star um, Orchestra. But uh, Bill Smallwood is the conductor in Fredericksburg, Texas, and they they perform all over the Hill Country area and in San Antonio as well. Um, but it's it's not very often Bill Smallwood has his whole sixteen piece jazz band play. But um, for I believe it's. So Memorial Day weekend was his past one. I think the next one is Labor Day weekend, and then they obviously have a New Year's weekend um, where they go up to the Hangar Hotel in Fredericksburg, Texas. And um, it's a really beautiful venue. They have it set up inside where they have, like, a tiki hut, and they have palm trees, and they have the the ocean painted on the walls. And um, it's a beautiful venue, and the, the band plays all of the old 40s, 50s music, um, the jazz, the old jazz. And so it's, they have a, a like an hour before the band plays where they teach everyone how to swing dance, so everyone can come out and and just dance to a sixteen piece. So it's it's awesome. We um we originally when we first uh, were volunteering with the museum, actually we heard about the hanger dance, so we showed up with our crew of living history volunteers all dressed up in our outfits, and uh, Bill Smallwood was like, "Oh my gosh, like y'all are all dressed up." And Jeff Copsetta, the Living History Coordinator at um, the museum, was like, yeah, and these girls can sing too. And Bill Smallwood was like, oh, can we hear him? So he, and it's amazing, it blows my mind even now, that he stopped his whole um, performance and was like, here's a mic, I want to hear how you do, sing in front of this whole crowd. And we're like, okay. So um, that Bill was just like, I want you to sing with my band. And so um, we've just been honored to get to sing with his 16-piece brass band um, every once in a while, not often. Um, but it's just so much fun to get to sing with an old band um, at the museum or at the hangar dance. Have you guys ever entertained the thought or has anybody presented the idea of why don't you guys do a, like a tribute CD or do a modern day um, swing, you know, jazz CD? Because, I mean, there are artists right. out there who do that and who are very, very successful at it. Yes, we, we actually have toyed with the de- idea. And um, actually, we have recorded um, 
like uh, I guess you call it a CD or a record is sometimes what we call it. Mm-hmm. Um, just with our acapella, though, we didn't have any kind of backup because it's usually what we do for the museum. And we've also sung, um, I think, two years ago, we sang at the Joint Air Force Base in Lackland for the air show. So we did an acapella set for them. We've sung at numerous, uh, like at the airport for the honor flight. We've done private singing. So we've, we've been around in San Antonio um, singing at different places. So we, we recorded an acapella record, um, but we just haven't really produced it or kind of, I guess, edited it is what you could call it because we're not really technologically sure. um, really good at that. So we were like, oh, so we're just trying to find someone to, to help us on that end, so the technical side of producing a record. Do you and your sisters have a website or a place where you guys are actively trying to book shows, or is this just something you guys do through the museum and when things come your way? Um, it's it's kind of both ways. So we do have a website. Um, my my one of my sisters, so Jeanette is my twin sister. She's the one that kind of um, uh, what do you call it? Like manages the sure. website. Um, it's Dillard Sisters uh, dot com. I want to say. Um, so we have that website. We get do get um, some people who come on there to ask us to perform for them. But a lot of it is also through the museum or through the honor flight where people are like, oh, we've heard you sing at the museum or we heard you sing at the air show. Can you come and sing at this other spot? So it's kind of both ways, both website and, um, and by ear. Her name is Elizabeth Dillard. Not only is she a member of the Dillard Sisters, not only is she an EMT, not only does she sing at the Hangar Hotel and any other place they'll have her, not only is she a living historian, but she's whip smart, and she's <laughs> a great attribute, and she does so much for the museum. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Um, it means a lot to me that you took time out of your day to do our little podcast. Thank you so much, and um, I will post a link to your webpage, and um, I hope to see you all soon. Maybe I'll get out to Texas sometime next year. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye-bye.